The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Continuing to study Acts, move to an important chapter today in chapter 16. It's not obvious as you would read Acts 16 that this is happening. In fact, Paul and Silas, who are the ones making it happen, probably weren't conscious as we are because I don't know that continents were defined in those times the way we define them. But Paul and Silas, as they cross over a little piece of water, to another point of land, and the city of Philippi actually pass with the gospel for the first time from the continent of Asia to the continent of Europe. Philippi is the first church established in what we call Europe, and we read about that today as we see this progress of the gospel and this second missionary journey of Paul that we're considering. I'll read Acts 16 beginning at verse 11 through 34. Listen to God's word. Setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days, and on the Sabbath day we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer. We sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God, and the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. After she was baptized and her household as well, She urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation." And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out at that hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. When they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews and are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. And the crowd joined in attacking them. The magistrates tore garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows on them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. 
Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them that same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. This is God's word. I know, at least from watching it in movies and fictional scenes, that in order to launch, authorize the launch of a a nuclear weapon, it takes the President of the United States and some top military officers pre-designated to this task, several of them possessing keys and codes that they must activate in a set sequence, a prescribed way to make sure that the authorized fail-safe commands are given. Obviously, not even the president has one switch that he can flip. You know, he might be brushing his teeth in the morning and say, whoops, there goes North Korea or something like that. No, there has to be several keys and an order executed in the proper way for such a fearsome thing as nuclear warfare to happen. But I'm thinking this morning of a legitimate opening up of something by authoritative action that is based on a much higher authority than the President of the United States or the Joint Chiefs of Staff of our military. What I'm thinking about is something the president doesn't have power to do and never will. It's the opening of the closed vault of the sinful human heart, something that only God has ability to do. Today in Acts 16, we consider a subject that seems very simple, the receiving of salvation in a couple of particular converts here as they are subject to hearing the gospel through the apostle Paul. The unlocking of a human heart from its natural condition to trust Christ. It seems simple. And yet we're reminded here that it is, in fact, a very profound miracle and work of God. In your everyday life, you use many different things to open other things, keys in doors, garage door openers, letter openers, can openers, But I know that none of you possesses a device called a heart opener. 
God is the heart opener. He and he alone can do this. Revelation 3.7 has a wonderful text that speaks about Christ, who it says holds the key of David. And what he opens, no one will shut, and what he shuts, none can open. God is the heart opener. Back in the 1730s in this country, in New England, Jonathan Edwards wrote a book during the revivals of the Great Awakening. The book was called A Narrative of Surprising Conversions. It was actually a series of biographical sketches of people Edwards had seen awakened to Christ as the revival was going on. And he gave just a little bit of each one's background and what they were like before and what happened to them and how they came to trust in Christ. I think that's somewhat similar to what we have here in Acts 16. Instead of just telling us, well, God was doing great things and many people were trusting Christ, Luke, the author of Acts, shows us sketches of specific converts to come to faith in this 16th chapter here in the city of Philippi. And I want to focus this morning on the conversion of the businesswoman, Lydia, and the unnamed jailer of Philippi as well. There's something you picked up if you were really sharp, and maybe you just didn't notice it. You wouldn't be blamed for not noticing it. But beginning in verse 10 of Acts 16, the text changes as the author writes. Before this, he has been writing third person, standing outside and saying, Paul went here and Barnabas went here and so on. If you look at verse 10, you notice something different. We sought to go on into Macedonia. The scholars talk about the we passages of Acts, those passages in which obviously Luke has suddenly entered in as an actor in the drama that he's describing. He was now a companion of Paul, and we believe it's possible at least that Philippi was his native city and where he first joined the apostle and got into this action as And you'll see we and us occurring frequently, although not the entire distance through the rest of Acts, but many places. So Luke was seeing these things and describing them, how through the preaching of Paul, the Holy Spirit, in a sense, made a European invasion like D-Day in Normandy many centuries later, but this time at this Greco-Roman city called Philippi. The Holy Spirit first lands and does his miracle work in the continent of Europe. And several rather unlikely persons become the first believers in a new church. And it's a church, by the way, that we know from later on when Paul writes his letter called Philippians. He's writing to the believers who were dearest to his heart, people who never caused him the major stresses and strains that he had from Corinth and other churches that just always seemed to be having things happening out of control. These folks were the the ones he held up as examples to others. His dear congregation in Philippi starts here. And besides just highlighting these particular individuals, what we have here is a pattern to teach us something about how salvation in Christ does come and does work to any person who receives him in faith today. I would give you a very simple picture to hold on to, just two main points today. And to grasp those two points, I just ask you to picture a locked door. 
You go home, I assume you probably locked your front door, and there may still be some people in Lancaster County who don't lock their doors. I hear that was very common years ago, that you didn't have to do that. I think it's a good idea to do it today. And as you go home, you'll take out a key, and you'll unlock the door, and then you'll, your hand will go a little bit lower, and you'll turn the knob, and your door will open, and you'll enter your house or your apartment. The two points I want to show you today is, first, as we look at Lydia's conversion, the key of God's regenerating grace. And secondly, as we look at the jailer's conversion, the door handle of active faith. Let's look at the key of God's regenerating grace here, first of all. And I read for you, Paul and Silas entering Philippi. Here was a city that was dominantly Greek. It had been Greek for centuries, and now it was Roman outpost. There was not a significant Jewish population here, and apparently no synagogue. You remember Paul's method was to go into the synagogue to worship with fellow Jews, where he could very easily develop a dialogue and say, well, let me tell you what Isaiah was prophesying, and I can tell you about the Christ who has come. And he very easily was able to speak the gospel that way. Well, no synagogue, but he hears that along the river there is a place where people worship. So he goes there. On the Sabbath, find some women gathered. And by the way, to have a synagogue, you had to have 10 Jewish men. So we assume possibly Philippi didn't even have that many Jewish men. But he interacts there with people who are said to be believers in the true God and finds himself talking with this group of women. And a woman in particular is highlighted who responded to Paul's message. Her name was Lydia. She's a businesswoman, not uncommon for a Roman citizen in that day, for a woman to have her own business. She sold cloth and textiles, a seller of purple, which is purple cloth is the cloth of nobility. So this was, you could say she dealt in high-class goods. She apparently, though she was from Thyatira nearby, had a home there, and she listened attentively and responded to the message of Paul. But look at why she responded in verse 14. As it says these all-important words, the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. An outward message was being spoken. I have no doubt it was a convincing, well-spoken, logical, articulate message. Paul was a smart man and a good speaker, a good debater. He could present things in a way that would convince people. But it's not said here that anything about Paul's eloquence had to do with this woman responding. The Lord opened her heart to respond to the message of God's word as Paul was teaching about Christ. It was God's grace that was like the plow that broke up the sod so that seed could be sown and a crop of faith in Jesus could come here in this woman's life. Now, we are led to believe that this is not simply one rare incident where God chose to work this way. This was rather God's continual way of working, that his Holy Spirit opens the heart. If there's an outward ministry of the word, as there is right now, I'm speaking about God's word. And some of you are listening, and some of you are will be applying what I say and will be taking it seriously and will be measuring it in your own life. Others are sitting there, for all I know, you're on the internet right now. A warning to you. Uh, I see a lot of things from here, by the way. Uh, And you're not paying attention at all. And God's word is going right over your head. You're not hearing. God has not opened you 
to hear the word. The theologian has a word for what happens here. Actually, several words, and they're roughly synonyms. We call this the regeneration of the Holy Spirit. Or the other word can be effectual calling. And actually, the words new birth mean about the same thing. We repeated a section from the Westminster Catechism this morning as a statement of faith, and it was aimed at effectual calling. Let me remind you what we said that is. Effectual calling is the work of God's Spirit, whereby convincing us of our sin and misery, so sin is involved, we have to be convinced of it, enlightening our minds in the knowledge of Christ and renewing our wills, God persuades and enables us to embrace Jesus Christ. In other words, we can't do those things until God works, until he opens up closed, locked, sinful minds. Ezekiel chapter 36 has a word from God about exactly what he's doing there when he says, I will give you a new heart, a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. Now, you know, I think that when the Bible talks about the heart, it's not talking about the muscular pump in your chest that the cardiologist checks out to see if your blood is circulating correctly by the ventricles and everything working the way they're supposed to. The heart is a broader term in the Bible. It means all of a man or woman's faculties by which we respond to God and one another in this world, our brain, our emotions, our will. It's like talking about the totality of the human being, the heart, the inner man. Now, we know that this inner man is active in many ways. We can learn things. We can teach other people. We can accumulate knowledge, write books. We can design rockets and bridges and do all kinds of useful things. We can feel emotions. We can feel pain. We can laugh. We can interact with one another. But the heart cannot do one thing. It cannot, of its own volition and its own powers, know God. It's locked down tight as far as God is concerned. Many passages could prove this. 1 Corinthians 2.14 says, The person who does not have the Spirit of God does not understand spiritual things. They're foolishness to him. 2 Corinthians 4.4 says, The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. It's not simple ignorance. It's not simply a matter that human beings need to be taught this and then they would learn it. In fact, it's an ignorance that is willful. Romans 1, 18 has that great diagnosis that says, look, the things that need to be known about God are known. And people have the ability to respond to the knowledge of God, at least that's put in the natural world. But even that, they don't respond to. They refuse it. They turn away from it. They distort it. And they will not have it. They suppress the truth in unrighteousness, says Romans 1. So we read in a passage like Ephesians 2 that we are, as a result, in this spiritual faculty of our heart, We're dead. That doesn't mean we can't do anything at all in this world. We can do many things. I was reading Time magazine yesterday. It came with a cover story about a 
a young woman who is uh, the CEO of one of the great internet companies of today, and it was she has written a book about leadership of women in business, and it was talking about her amazing abilities in, as a business leader. And she, she probably would be a success anywhere she went. I don't know her spiritually, though. It didn't talk about that. I do know that as she came into this world for all the, the success she's achieved and the millions of dollars she's paid to be a CEO of this large, successful company, coming into this world... As far as her spiritual heart is concerned, she was dead in her trespasses and sins, just as I was, and just as you are if you have not come alive in Christ. We need, the Scripture says, something from outside us to unlock what is locked. And it's not a president's nuclear key. It's the work of the Spirit of God. And until that happens... We are as impervious to the message that God has sent Christ to be our Savior as, you know, a monkey is to calculus. Uh, I haven't done my taxes yet. I need to get them done soon. And, you know, I've been busy, and I could say, oh, I'll just put that off longer. But we have a dog at our house who doesn't do anything but sleep and eat all day long. And I could say, look, dog, earn your keep. I'm going to spread out the tax forms here by your dish. And in order for you to get dinner at 3.30 every day when you were so anxious for it, you will have to take the pencil and the W-2 forms that I set there and put it all together and fill out my taxes. Won't happen, will it? You might as well ask a two-year-old child to analyze the plays of Shakespeare. You see, there's an incapability here. The human heart is locked against true knowledge of God. Jesus was talking about this in John 6, when he said, no one can, that's a word of ability, no one has the ability to come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him to me. There is the need of a sovereign, miraculous, mysterious action of the Holy Spirit to unlock the human heart. And it's so important what's said here about Lydia, and it applies to you and me. The Lord opened her heart to hear the message of the word of Christ. Well, secondly, then I go to the other point here and the other conversion that we see of this unnamed jailer. Interesting that his name is never told, but the Lord just didn't choose to disclose that. And in this case of another conversion, we see another principle about salvation, and I'm calling it the door handle of a faith response. Now, just notice quickly again as I sketch what happened to set this whole thing up. Here was this slave girl following Paul around. She was somebody that belonged to handlers who charged for her to tell fortunes. And that fortune-telling was ascribed to a demonic spirit. This may seem odd to you, but here was a demon that could tell things that happened to be true sometimes at least. And in Paul's case, notice what the demon said was true. Look at what the girl said. These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. That was 100% true. And the the demon understood that. When it says Paul was annoyed by that, he couldn't have been annoyed at what was being said because it was true. But he would think he was annoyed by the demonic oppression on this girl's life. 
and wanted to see her free and exorcise that demon in the name of Christ. So Paul does that, and what happens? Well, whoever owned her now is getting no more profit from prophecy, and that's a problem. And so they haul Paul and Silas before the city magistrates and say, look, these guys are outsiders. They are Jews, a little anti-Semitism going on there in this Roman town, and they're disturbing our city and teaching strange things. Take care of them. All the magistrates were glad to take care of them. Notice they stripped their clothing off and just started beating them. Never asking, are you by any chance a Roman citizen? That's going to come up at the end of the chapter if you want to read beyond where I did when Paul tells them the next day that he was a Roman citizen and they're aghast at what they had done to him. But for this moment at least, they throw him in the prison. They even put him in the inner prison and fasten their, their, their feet into stocks. Now, wouldn't you, if you were Paul and Silas, be sitting in prison saying, wow, what a failure this ministry to Philippi has been. We should have stayed where we were. We never should have ventured over here. This is just terrible. But that's not what they were doing, is it? At midnight, in the stocks, unable to move, get up, even walk around in the cell, they were singing hymns of praise to God. And the other prisoners were paying attention. Now, this is the third jailbreak in Acts. We've talked about the others. Different means. There was an angel involved once. This time, it's an earthquake. The prison is shaken. Doors off their hinges. Somehow, even the the shackles or the, the stocks are broken. And up pops the jailer, running out, sure, as he sees the broken door of the prison, that all his prisoners are gone. Listen, Rome had a good way of making sure you you got the job done when you were charged with something like being head of a jail. Do your job or you die. That's real easy. You know, in a way, it was a pretty soft, easy post most of the time. Unless a prisoner escaped, then you were in big trouble. And this man assumes they've all escaped. I will die. I might as well kill myself. Paul calls out, wait, don't do it. We're all here. And the man runs in, and he knows what was told to him the day before, that someone said, these men are from another city, and and they're talking about salvation from the Most High God. And look what he says. Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Evidently, you know something about this, for that's why they've, they've put you here. What is this salvation How do I get it? And the great answer that comes back is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And you will be saved, you and your household. Now, Paul would not have said that to the man if the Spirit hadn't already opened this man's heart up, the same as Lydia. What is he being asked to do when he's told believe in the Lord Jesus Christ? You know, some some people just think that there's this vague thing called faith So you kind of have faith in faith, or you have this nice positive spirit of attitude that's called faith. Well, notice the faith is in an object, Jesus Christ. I'll talk about that in a moment. But you know, there can be faith that's nothing other than a recognition of a fact. I can say, I believe it's Sunday, and I believe I'm right. Am I not right? I can say, I believe we've switched to 
daylight savings time. And that's a fact. And you say, yes, pastor, you're very astute. You're right. But there's also belief that goes beyond just simply recognizing a fact, intellectual. There is belief that takes hold of something in a wholehearted, stake-your-life-on-it kind of trust, relying upon a sure object and leaning entirely on that object as if you were taking refuge in it from a hailstorm of bombs or something. Going to that object and holding on as if your life depended on it because, in fact, it does. Jesus Christ is to be the singular object of this kind of faith. And when he is, you are saying, he's my reigning Lord. He's not just my friend, my buddy. He's not just a better person in history than I am, a good moral teacher or something like that. He is the judge of heaven and earth. And I come to him and cling to him. I stake everything that I am or ever will be upon him. That's what's implied in the kind of faith that's here. Now, here's where you could go wrong in what I'm talking to you about today because of these two points. The first point, clearly there isn't anything you can do about it. God opened Lydia's heart and he must open your heart by the Holy Spirit. But you think, aha, second point, God does the first one, I do the second one, right? Believe. Well, yes and no. How's that for a positive answer? Because I bring into the picture a passage like Ephesians 2.8 that says, by grace are you saved through faith and that is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Even the act of faith has God's enabling power and sponsorship within it. Yes, of course, you must cooperate. You must act. But how do you act? Only as God enables you to act. I was trying to think of a a right comparison, and I don't think I have the best illustration yet, but one I thought of was a medical exam with your doctor. You go in and The doctor says, all right, you know, sit up on the table here. Now, I'm going to put the stethoscope on your back. Breathe deeply four times. Cough. Open your mouth. Say, ah, I'm going to hit your knee with a hammer. Your knee kicks the doctor in the shin, you know. And in other words, you have to cooperate. The doctor's conducting the exam, but you're cooperating with his action. That's what faith is. You don't come up with the faith by yourself. Even your faith is the gift of God, and yet, once he's given it, he expects it to act and take hold of Christ. I emphasize in all our new members' classes the importance of a passage that's in Philippians, the letter Paul later writes to this church, Philippians 2, 12 and 13, that says, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, For it is God who works in you, both to will it and to perform it. That's a marvelous encapsulation of what faith is. Working as if you had to do it, knowing all the time that unless God enables it, nothing will be done that's meaningful. That's a wonderful summation of God's gift of faith coming alive in us. Now, here's how I want to conclude today. There's a tremendous assurance for what salvation is in this passage and in these two points that I've made. In the first place, God has to open your heart. In the second place, you have to 
cooperate as God gives the gift of faith. You know, I talk to a lot of people in new member interviews and other times, and they'll tell me about how they came to Christ. And I hear this story over and over and over. So I know that it's still happening, and I know that many of you have experienced this. People say, look, when I was five, my mother challenged me, have you received Jesus? And I said, no, Mom, I want to. I don't want to go to hell. So I prayed the sinner's prayer, and I think that's when I became a Christian. But then I was seven, and I went to camp, and they had a campfire and a challenge and said, have you trusted in Jesus? And I said, boy, I'm not sure if it worked the first time. So I did it again. And then in vacation Bible school, I did it again. And then in Sunday school, I did it again. I lived this, so I know what we're talking about here. And the idea is how many times you have to ask Jesus into your heart before you do it the right way. And there are many people caught in that cycle. And I ask those people, as I learned to ask myself finally as a teenager, what am I trusting in here anyway? Some quality of my own asking and praying the sinner's prayer, some feeling that I'm supposed to have, or am I trusting staking my very future existence upon the Lord Jesus Christ and his ability to do what he died to do and rose to do for me. It's not about whether I've asked him the right way. It's about whether I have expected salvation from the one and only person who can bestow it. Salvation in Christ depends on God's life-bestowing grace and our reaction of faith that even God begins by giving it to us, turning that handle. Jesus says, I stand at the door and knock. If any man will open the door and come to me, I will come in with him and sup with him and he with me. Who begins this work? Why, the scripture says, he who began it. We'll take it to completion in the day of Christ. God and God alone is the heart opener. Ladies and gentlemen, I give you today what Paul said to this jailer. And a whole family was affected by this invitation. You know, we sang this song, The Power of the Cross. The last verse says, Oh, to see my name written in those wounds. For through your suffering, I am free. Can you say that? You know, this is really basic today. And some of you say, well, I I need something more advanced. No, you don't. You need to make sure you're grounded in this first. Has God opened your heart? And have you responded to say, my Lord and my God, I put all my trust with all my conviction and all the passion of my being and all the hope of my future in Jesus Christ. And I know that he will save me because he is the one sent from God who alone is the heart opener. Let's pray together. God, our Father, We need to hear these basic things. I thank you that you do by your power what we cannot do by all our ambition, all our desiring, all our right praying, 
all our holy living, all our Bible reading and memorization, all our church attendance, you, the God of the universe, open hearts. And I pray today that where you are opening hearts and people are saying, yes, I want this Savior, you will give the assurance of faith that takes hold of Jesus and of you in your strong bonds claiming and holding on to that one and doing so not for a moment or one day, but for all eternity. I pray you would do this work that you did in Philippi a long time ago and do it to your glory even here in Lancaster today. For Jesus' sake, amen.